Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet local and regional authors, and sometimes even farther afield with the magic of remote podcasting, and we hear them read their work. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more. And I'm excited about today's episode, so let's get to it. In today's episode, we meet Joseph Mills, author of Bleachers, 54 Linked Fictions, Stories About What Happens in and Around Youth Sports. Shane Dale Beers, author of Secure Your Own Mask, winner of the White Pine Press Poetry Prize, says, In Bleachers, Joe Mills pulls back the curtain on an oft-ridiculed segment of society, the soccer mom or dad and reveals the deeper recesses of the human psyche. The realization that to have a child is the death of the self, that some days the best you can do as a parent is just be there, and myriad other epiphanies. From pregame to postgame, from aging to Zidane, there are life lessons for player and parent. Joe starts the show reading one of the stories titled Broncos, where one mother wonders why teams couldn't be more honest about what they call themselves. Broncos. Marissa watches Cameron burrow into the team huddle. The kids put their hands towards the center, bow their heads, then after a moment whip their arms in the air as they yell, Go Broncos! It's ridiculous. The fake bonding and ludicrous rituals, the gestures that are so much more developed than the skills. They can't kick the ball in a straight line but they can fist bump and pose and celebrate in a half dozen ways. And the ridiculous team names, Broncos, Panthers, Sharks, those fantasies of strength and animal power. Why couldn't teams be more honest about what they call themselves? How about the Blobs, the Pudding Pops, the Candy Hogs? Or for the ones that never come close to winning a game, the Minnows, the Bugs, the Plankton. Name them after the prey they are. Marissa knows better than to say this out loud, even as a seeming joke. It would be like when she says she's suffering from postpartum depression. People make sympathetic sounds. Then when they find out Cameron is 10, they move away as quickly as they can. She had been looking forward to being a mother. At least that's what she had thought. And she had said the things she was expected to say, even afterwards, when she knew they were no longer true. But she had wanted to have a child, not some creature that looked like a special effect. He had come out misshapen and lizard-like. Even now, he is basically an animal. 
He eats and sleeps and plays and shits. Pretty much like what they had seen at the zoo, where the animals had been either napping or pacing. The big showcase, the bears, had been sprawled on the cement floor looking like dirty rugs. So maybe the team names aren't that far off. Maybe they should be the bears. In a few years, Cameron will add sex to his list of activities, and that will be it, the repertoire for his life. Congratulations, the doctor should have said. You've brought another beast into the world. But it doesn't really matter, does it? Horses are broken, ridden, and sold for glue. Bears are caged and cubicled. Bulls are butchered and made into sandwiches to get sold at Subway. So if before some of these kids get stomped yet again, if before they are processed and packaged like the pieces of meat they are, they shout and feel powerful for a moment, maybe that's good. Delusional, but good. On the bleachers around Marissa, people yell, Go Broncos! and Come on Broncos! It sounds like a pack gearing up to howl. She knows she should at least mouth the words and try to camouflage herself and fit in so they won't turn on her and tear her apart. Go, she says softly. Go. Hey, listeners, before we dive into the interview here, I'd like to uh, thank you for taking some of your valuable time to listen to this episode today. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'd also like to let you know about a couple of benefits available to our listeners If you sign up for our email list at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, we will send you uh, a free ebook, the first book in my Christmas courtroom trilogy. We promise not to spam you. That just takes way too much time. We just provide a bi-weekly newsletter to let uh, listeners know what's coming and uh, allow you to engage with the show. Also, show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And finally, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O.fm. And if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word. You may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte Reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. And now, here's a little bit more about the author, followed by our conversation, more readings, and our writing life discussion. I hope you enjoy a faculty member at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts, Joseph Mills holds an endowed chair in the humanities and was honored with the 2017 UNC Board of Governors Award for Excellence in Teaching. He has published six collections of poetry with Press 53, most recently Exit, Pursued by a Bear, which consists of poems triggered by stage directions in Shakespeare. His book, The Miraculous Turning, was awarded the North Carolina Roanoke Chowan Award for Poetry for its exploration of race and family. Uh, Joe also writes criticism and nonfiction. He edited the collection of film criticism, A Century of the Marx Brothers. With his wife, Danielle Tarmy, he researched and wrote two editions of A Guide to the North Carolina's Wineries. And his essay on hearing my daughter trying to sing Dixie won the Rose Post-Creative Nonfiction Competition. He holds various degrees. Uh, He's written a lot, uh, but his daughter insists that he isn't really a real doctor since he doesn't work in a hospital. And his son is really puzzled as to why anyone would want an autographed book from him saying, hey, Dad, it's, it's not like you're LeBron James. Joe, welcome to the show. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, hey. you're, you're not you're not LeBron James. <laughs> Your children keep you honest, you know. <laughs> That's true. That is true. So much. How do you get your kids to read what you write? That's a, that's always a, uh, a challenge, right? Well, and, and sometimes when you're writing about family, you maybe don't want them to read what you write. So you don't have to look at this. That's true. So you teach at North Carolina School of the Arts. Tell us about the school. Uh, the school is one of, I think, 17 UNC campuses, but it's a unique one in that it's totally dedicated to training professional artists or artists who want to become professional. So dancers, actors, uh, filmmakers, musicians. And so it's a really kind of special place and the creation of art. Mm -hmm. That's great. So I, I went to law school in Winston-Salem, uh, met my wife there. Uh, so I was being somewhat creative, I guess. And, and in that regard, I did not go to the School of the Arts, but I've heard about it. Uh, uh, let's talk a minute about what you teach uh, at the School of the Arts. So I got my PhD in literature and I was hired to teach uh, composition and American literature and humanities. Um, and then the great thing is that the school, since it's so small, we teach a variety of things. So I really expanded out in the humanities. I teach uh, creative writing of all sorts. Um, I have great uh, leeway and luxury to kind of teach things that interest me. So I've taught everything from the Marx Brothers to the American 1920s. Um, and I, I, I see these as all kind of interconnected. I like not being a specialist, you know, mm. just like 10 years of literature in one nation, but I can roam across the humanities. So the students don't compartmentalize. They don't say, well, I'm just a writer. I'm just a film person. You've got uh, all these different students that are experimenting with their writing in your classes. Sometimes, yeah. So the, they're very uh, specialized in their training as far as I'm a dancer, I'm a ballet dancer, I'm a musician. But then they take academic classes that are across the range of liberal arts. And so mm -hmm. they have a, a wide variety there to choose from. Well, I'm a little nervous here because I saw that you also teach interviewing. And so I'm thinking what kind of grade I'm going to get at the, at the end of this session here. <laughs> no, no. You know, the, inter the interviewing things are truly what are good questions to ask people that will kind of get them to open up and tell stories and aren't, yeah. you know, yeah. monosyllabic. All right. We'll see, so. see if we can try some of that today. Uh, now, you said you came to Winston-Salem and you only plan to stay a few years. Uh, what made you stick? Uh, we had, my wife and I had moved a lot up until then. We didn't have any kids. Uh, we didn't really know what we were kind of wanting to do. And the job, I realized soon after I got here, the job is pretty great in the leeway it gives me. Then kids came along, uh, and we realized it was a pretty great place to raise a family. Uh, my wife was pursuing things that really interested her and there was all these opportunities. So every time we kind of looked around to go somewhere else, it was why why would we? That's great. And uh, it's just, it's, you know, the younger me looks at, at me and thinks, great place to raise your kids. What's wrong with you? Uh, but the older me is like, that's important. It's a, it's great to be in a neighborhood. It's great to, to have a vibrant town. Winston-Salem, unlike a lot of towns, really has made the effort to keep its downtown alive and uh, has done a fantastic job as far as growing itself and being vibrant. Now, now, Joe, you've written mostly poetry, but now you have this collection of stories that we're going to talk about today um, that are, you know, well, we're going to dive into it. But as parents watching or having to watch, depending on their perspective, their kids playing sports, I was wondering, um, did you find something poetic in that experience? I, I did. I mean, I find so these stories are kind of right on the border. I mean, I, I, I work a lot in kind of 
prose poetry flash fiction and whether or not there's a distinction there, I'm not that interested. Uh, so I've had a, a, the same piece published as a poem and also published as a short story in two different anthologies. And it's the same piece, but it's right there kind of at the border. So I find, I, I love sports. Uh, I find sports very poetic. I find sports very narrative. And I love sitting there watching everybody, both in the bleachers, but on the field. I think it's it it reveals it doesn't reveal character as far as you know sports reveals character of the athlete it definitely reveals the character of the parents and it just uh, they're just beautiful moments as you're just sitting there if you're really just kind of sitting there watching it's a it's a wonderful kind of focusing time yeah well it's interesting to me because when you um, reached out to me and uh, I looked at your book to be on the podcast you know I'm looking at it and I'm having one thought about what this might be about and then you know, listeners, there. you know, just I'm a little surprised here. There are some hidden nuggets. There are things. This is not Hoosiers. It's not Remember the Titans. It's not Rudy. It's not, you know, it's not these, you know, we're going to start here in the beginning and in the end, everybody's going to be celebrating, carrying, you know, the coach and the and the player off the field. Uh, this is a lot about what goes on uh, outside the lines, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and so I'm wondering um, – what drew you to focus more on, you know, that part of the sports experience as opposed to what was going on the field itself? So kind of the way it developed, I was just, I would, I would do these monologues almost uh, and then these short pieces. And I, I can talk about kind of structure later. So I tried to figure out how to do it, but what drew me was just looking at all these people, you know, as an interviewer, I would sit at the mall sometimes, not, not very often because I hate the mall. And I would look at people going by and you just want to say, what happened? How did you get here? Because you used to be kind of small. So, so what happened? What's going on with your life right now? And the same thing is when I'm looking at all those people on the sports fields or in the bleachers, you just think, what's, what's going on with you right now? And it's a way to try to kind of figure that out. And so that really intrigued me and interested me. But as you pointed out, when I when I gave an early draft of this to my publisher, he said, I really love this, but I don't know what the hell it is. It's like, I don't, you know, where's the, it's not Rudy, it's not Hoosiers, where's this, there's no gun, there's no, you know, what happens? And really nothing happens, right? We go, we watch a game, we leave. And we do that every day of the week sometimes. So, and some of the pieces when I sent them out, I would get a similar response. Editors would say, this is really beautiful writing. I really like this, but, but it's not a story. Nothing happens. And it, you're, you're right. It's a kind of slice of life. But if you get enough of those together, something is happening. If you tell this story and that 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 story, then suddenly you have a larger kind of mosaic of a community, hopefully. And so that's what I realized I was kind of going for. Yeah, Joe, so that, that is interesting. Um, I kind of had this same thought. I'm looking for the arc here, you know, okay, where, where, where's the, where's the hero here? Where, you know, in the story that's going to end up in the end. And you do have some hero stories in here. They're kind of interesting, but the heroes are not necessarily on the field. It might be a parent who's struggling, uh, you know, to get through life, who's doing the best they can to look after their kid and get them to practice. And they're not being appreciated. You, you've kind of um, focused on, I would say, and you mentioned slices of life. Um, 
there are stories being told here, but they're often the stories in the heads of the people who are actually watching the games. Right. Yeah. There, there, there are stories and there are narratives, uh, but it, but the narrative isn't the actual kind of game itself of who is going to win or who is going to lose, which I don't find very compelling. Uh, I, I have a hard, I love sports and now I have a hard time telling you who won last week. I have a hard time telling you who won the Super Bowl last year or the year before, even though I watched it and I watched it with great interest. But the final outcome of the game, I don't think is ever that personally compelling to me. What is compelling are the, are the moments that happened. Mm. And so those are the things that I was looking for. And there are. I mean, there isn't a game that actually happens and you could trace the game through if you were interested. But some parents are, are only watching with kind of half an eye anyway. You know, they look up, so somebody scored. What did I just miss? You know, nobody has scored for half an hour. So uh, <laughs> I realized that wasn't what I was going for. And and that was something that took me a while to, to, to realize too. I, in the beginning, I wrote some of the monologues from the viewpoints of the children or the kids playing and then I read I, that was that was not that interesting to me and so I, probably because I'm not as good of a writer as I perhaps should be or I'm not uh, as interested in that mindset but I realized they're not the people I'm interested in I'm interested in all of the, all the spectators mm. or non-spectators yeah that's interesting because this book actually could have happened around any field of play involving youth athletics could have been a baseball field. It could have been a basketball court. Could have been anywhere, you know, it could have been, it could have been a piano recital, any, any place that we have to, we take our kids and we all gather together people who are really different that we would never, we don't gather in any other environment, but there we all to get art together, nodding to each other because we see each other every week, but it could be anything. Okay. Before we dive into the book, um, you've got this sort of simple, but, complicated structure to I want you to explain this you know game of cards here so and I was thinking you know before the interview I was thinking what I love about sports and one of the things I love about sports I mean uh, we talk about stories and storytelling and and sports gives us a, a narrative there's a beginning and an end for a game there's a beginning and an end for a season there's even a beginning and an end for certain teams like we played together for three years or four years so there's a kind of narrative structure there that I really like. Uh, but as I put this together, I had a, a lot of pieces, probably 100, maybe 150 pieces. And I was trying to figure out how, what's a logical way to put them together, or even just an interesting way. And so I knew that I wanted, or I, I eventually I figured out, okay, what if it takes place over the course of a game? So that is one kind of structure in here. It, it takes a course of you arrive before the game and then go into the post game, particularly with young kids, snack is the most important thing. It <laughs> doesn't matter what happened in the game, who brought snack and what was snack. Um, that's one structure. But then once I started linking the pieces together, I found a different structure, which was there are 54 pieces, which is essentially a deck of cards. And a deck of cards has 52 pieces of four suits. So there's four, four teams out there. And there's 12 pieces for each team that kind of link all the way through. And then there's two Joker ones. Um, these are unmarked and these are kind of wild cards within it. So there's a kind of pack of cards. There's a game there. And then there's also, uh, because it's 26 and 26, it goes A through Z. So it reads as a kind of parenting primer 
So there's two A stories, two B stories, two C stories. So as a writer, what happened was I was really trying to figure this out. And you'll see different characters that will loop through. And it's like, oh, I saw that man. And that man will appear in a different one. And if there's an ongoing theme, it's how we misjudge our parenting all over the place. And we don't understand what's really happening. But I had to work out the structure of what time we were in the game and who was where. And you know, coming up with like a big board or a big link or who's arrived where, and I had the rosters of what kid is playing on what team. So what, and it was it was a puzzle that you don't need to know it's there. <laughs> it was fun to figure out. Uh, it's more for my amusement, but you know, you're trying to keep it all in your head. Well, so I stumbled across this when I was uh, we we're talking about what raid you're going to do in the podcast today, and I you picked out a few, and then I picked out a couple, and one I picked out. I was going to tell you in an email what it was, and I it didn't have a title. It just had a soccer ball on it. It's the third read you're going to do today. And I said, what? I don't know what this is. What? And you said, well, that's one of the jokers. And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, and so then that was the discussion, too. Like, it, does it have a title? Does it not have a title? Um, and I guess we could talk about it a bit yeah. later so I can more fully yeah. explain yeah. it. I don't think there will be a spoiler right. here. I don't think if we reveal right. these <laughs> But so the earlier one, the Joker piece or the wildcard piece is the league organizer, yeah. um, which is, I, I guess, is one of the ones that we're going to read. And it, he doesn't have a kid there, but everything he does is crucial. So the second later piece is a woman whose child has died and she keeps coming to the field to look at kids that are the age of what her child would have been. And throughout the chapters, people keep seeing her, but nobody knows what she's doing there. And they're really wary of her. She's weird. Don't, don't go by over that weird person over there. And they don't understand the kind of grief that she's trying to process. So you have uh, experienced uh, the sidelines yourself. You and your wife uh, have two children. And both you and your wife were athletic uh, coming along. Is that right? Yes, that is. Yeah, and so do y'all get uh, pleasure out of sitting on the sidelines? And do your kids give you any rules about how you're supposed to behave when you're there? <laughs> uh, very, very good question. Yeah. We get enormous pleasure from sitting on the sidelines, although uh, we also realize we have to check ourselves very early on. Like, don't get don't get too. It's just the game. Uh, they don't give us any any rules or guidelines, um, although occasionally we'll give each other the kind of hand pat, the kind of, you know, rein it in a little bit here. Why don't you go for why don't you go for a walk? Uh, this is not that Im important as much as we're enjoying. That's good. Well, you, so you told me a little story. I want you to share it because uh, you show up to these games and you've got a little, little notebook like authors carry around, you know, and you're jotting things down that you're seeing in life, including what's going on around the field and uh, this book comes out. And so people find out you've written a book about all the people that are watching the game and you go to a basketball game and what happens? Yeah. So the, I went to a basketball <laughs> game and I sat down, I got up my notebook and a parent came up and she went to sit next to me. And then she says, I'm not going to sit next to you. You're going to put me in your next book. And she, she kind of walks away <laughs> to which I thought, well, too late. Cause we've had this interaction now. I'll probably do something this with it. We're going to lead, lead um, off with this chapter, right? <laughs> Yeah, this is all fair game. So, uh, it, and you know, I, I find that notebook is good because it gives me something to do. I have a, a friend who I always made fun of him because he kept the stats for his children from very early on. And that to me was overkill. And he explained, he said, it gives me something to do that I'm not then yelling, that I'm not. It's a way to be involved in the game, but in a way that's acceptable. So, 
but I just figured, oh, he's keeping stats and he's going to go, you know, break the game down with his kids and all that kind of thing. And he wasn't doing that at all. So you cover a wide variety of parental spectators uh, in this book uh, from the totally indifferent to the overly engaged. And we're going to talk about some of that in a moment. Uh, I'm just curious, um, you know, as a parent who came along watching sports and coaching sports, who I know there were days that I wish I could have taken back in terms of my sideline behavior. I'm just wondering what your personal take is on the uh, sort of the right balance that parents should try to strike while they're at their children's sporting events. I, I think the right balance is you, you bring them, you celebrate them and, and that's it. And you pay attention. Mm. But, but that's it. I don't think you, you coach. I don't think you do. You know, I talked to some of my students about this. They said the worst part of the games were the ride homes afterwards where the parent would want to go over it and say, what did you do wrong and how could you do better? And I, I don't think that's really necessary. And I always try to guard myself against that. Uh, I think you are, you are present but non-intrusive yeah. if possible. And as helpful as possible, you don't yell at the refs, you don't yell at the coaches. It's astounding to me sometimes yeah. uh, how people behave. Yeah, well, I wish I'd talked to you 30 years ago about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and I say that, you know, I say that, but, but sometimes I think, you know, I, I'll be happy when my children are old enough that I can watch them on TV so I can just be yelling at the screen <laughs> and nobody around me will worry. That's great. And you also, Joe, cover a wide variety of topics in the book. Your uh, table of contents, you've got everything from aging to cheating to enemies to frenemies to responsibility to losers to winners. Um, you started off with this piece, Broncos, that you chose, which um, I'm just curious, you know, what drew you to that story, that particular story about the woman who kind of softly pulled for the Broncos, but with a little distant? So I, I, one of the things I think about parenting is there, there's many, many ideas about parenting. One thing that surprised me about parenting was how everybody would have, uh, would judge me in some way or have an opinion about how I was parenting. Like they would come up to me in the stores and say, you shouldn't buy those diapers. What are you doing? Oh, you're let your kid have a pacifier. That's, you know, and everybody would, would throw in their input. So that surprised me. But the second thing was what we say about parenting and you know Father's Day and Mother's Day and all that kind of sentimentality. And then the really true feelings we have about parenting and the true difficulties we have. And sometimes we just don't wanna do it. Uh, I had a friend, so this, I had a friend who gave birth and her grandmother came over and said, you know, that baby is a, blessing and that baby is beautiful and some days you're going to want to throw that baby against the wall and it's okay everybody feels that way so just put them somewhere safe and go calm down and you're going to love that baby all the same uh but the kind of how we really feel sometimes is i could i could divide that out among a lot of different characters and then explore those in a lot of different ways and you know we we are judgmental about each other without really understanding what's going on sometimes all right. Well, let's move from the uh, from the parent spectator who um, is a little distant, like the one that uh, was in Broncos, to to the father who has to get uh, directions from his wife about what he can and cannot say on the sidelines. And the title of this is uh, "Naked." Uh, you're going to do a little short read from this, and I think it's pretty self-explanatory what you're going to read so why don't we just pick it up and uh we'll talk about it after you finish okay naked 
Since it's close to halftime and Caleb is on the bench, Roy decides to go to the car to look for a pen. In the glove box, he finds the index card that Paige gave him. Being a teacher, of course she had laminated it. The card reads, go Caleb, go Pirates, keep hustling, good job Caleb. This is what you're allowed to say, she explained. That's it? That's it. Nothing negative, no coaching. You are not the coach. If you want to coach, then volunteer and coach. They always need help coaching. But if you are not going to coach, then you are not a coach. So you shouldn't say anything except for what's on this card. It was a joke and not a joke. He was amused and annoyed and understood. He could become too involved, too intense. This season, he has resolved not to say anything, like that guy last year who would come to games and sit stone-faced. He had sometimes wondered if the man didn't understand soccer, but maybe he too had been under strict instructions. Keep your mouth shut. This year, there's a woman watching from way off. She's probably trying to control herself too. He should watch from inside the car again, with the windows up. Or he could be like that parent who inanely repeats whatever action had just happened with the word good. Good pass, good shot, good water break. The first half had been a challenge since Caleb had made several boneheaded decisions. Roy yelled, pay attention and keep up the pressure. Things that weren't on the card, but he thought should be allowed since they weren't negative. At least not very negative. Then he felt the urge to yell more, the need to yell more. Something like, pass the goddamn ball. But he knew from experience those around him would be shocked. Or at least act like it, even if he said what they were thinking. They'd recoil, and if he tried to reassure them, it's all right, he's my kid, that wouldn't help. He couldn't explain that they shouldn't be worried. He isn't one of those kind of parents, the intense, great Santini drill sergeant kind. He is the intense, but loving kind. His kids know where he's coming from. Caleb wouldn't be bothered by it. But other parents don't always understand. They think they do, but they don't. No one understands what a family member is saying except other family members. What he needs is one of those soundproof rooms that churches have for crying babies. Not necessarily to separate them from the kids, but from the well-behaved parents, the ones who aren't engaged enough to care. <laughs> <laughs> I love this because I've seen it. I've been it. Uh, I know what, what it is. It's, uh, but this idea of here's a little laminated card, uh, honey, you, you, these are the things you can say. And only the, only these things right here, yes. he says, put me in a soundproof room. I need to, I need to get it out. And, uh, you know, what are these people over there writing in their notebook? They're not even paying attention. And what they didn't know is you were paying attention. You just, uh, paying attention to them more than what was going on in the field. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, let's do this. We're gonna uh, just we're gonna take a short break. We'll be right back. When we come back, we're gonna we're gonna do this uh, Joker piece about the league administrator. Uh, we're also gonna talk about uh, teaching responsibility to children and uh, what parents go through and trying to do that at home and on the field. And uh, we've got some writing life discussion. Also, we've got a final read, uh, which is actually the final piece in the book. So, uh, uh, listeners, uh, please stay with us. Hey listeners, I'd like to share some information with you about uh, four organizations that are important players in our literary community, and uh, they're also supporters of the podcast. Uh, Spark Publications, Charlotte Lit, Charlotte Writers Club, and North Carolina Writers Network. 
Spark Publications is one of our early supporters, and they have been sending me some uh, wonderful authors uh, with some well-designed books. They are an award-winning independent publishing firm that helps authors bring their work to life. They work strategically with their authors to help them complete their manuscripts, design their covers and books uh, for marketability, register their ISBNs and Library of Congress numbers, proofread, manage the print options, market, and much more. To find out more about how you can publish a nonfiction or art book with the support of an experienced team, check out sparkpublications.com. Charlotte Lit, otherwise known as Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, is an organization in which I'm a member. It's a nonprofit art center whose mission is to celebrate the literary arts by educating and engaging writers and readers through classes, conversations, and community. Uh, I really enjoy participating in those classes. Uh, they see themselves, and I do too, as a valued and vital part of the Charlotte arts community, and they've become a premier creative writing center for the region. You can find out more about them and how to participate at charlottelit.org. For 98 years, the Charlotte Writers Club has continued to offer a supportive writing environment in the greater Charlotte community. Uh, I was a board member of that uh, organization for a few years recently. Uh, really enjoyed uh, participating that way and also in their regular meetings, their contests, and their community organizations. They offer a monthly newsletter, uh, monthly meetings, and speakers. Yeah, I was speaker chairman too. Uh, they do critique groups, open mics, and... Uh, they offer writing workshops and writing contests. You can find out more about uh, Charlotte Writers Club at uh, charlottewritersclub.org. I'm also a member of the North Carolina Writers Network. Uh, they offer six annual competitions, three annual conferences, and I think I've attended uh, all three of those. Many online classes uh, and critiquing and editing services uh, for their members. They serve over 1,400 members in North Carolina and beyond. Uh, in all genres and all levels of experience uh, with all manner of publishing credits. To find out more about the North Carolina Writers Network, uh, check out ncwriters.org. As a writer and a reader, I have benefited from participating in all three of these writing organizations, Charlotte Writers Club, Charlotte Lit, and North Carolina Writers Network. It's been a great experience for me. I've also enjoyed collaborating with Spark Publications, meeting and uh, interviewing their authors and looking at their fine work. If you'd like to check out uh, what each of these uh, supporters has to offer, uh, go to our show notes, uh, scroll to the bottom, and you'll find information about each one, uh, links, and also a promo code. Hey, listeners, I'm back with uh, Joe Mills. He's the author of Bleacher, 54 Linked Fictions. That's uh, like a 52 piece deck of cards and two jokers and we're now to one of the jokers and uh, earlier when we we're talking about this joe you you identified that you have these two pieces in the book that that uh of course you can't play the joker you know when you're playing cards i suppose that's one way to look at these two stories the administrator can't play so but he's got to be there to kind of coordinate and uh, as a former league organizer myself, having been the Pop Warner Commissioner for 11 years in Charlotte, uh, I really was drawn to this particular piece, because <laughs> <laughs> uh, particularly the little part you're going to read, uh, you want to set this up a minute, because you're going to start, uh, you know, a couple paragraphs into the book. Tell us tell us about this piece. Uh, so this piece is, um, you know, it's uh, from Mauricio's point of view, and he's the one who puts all the schedules together and, and kind of everything together. And when the 
when the season starts, he's at the fields from morning until night, making sure everything is running smoothly and kind of answering questions and all of that. And so he doesn't, he doesn't have a player there, but he has to smile and have his clipboard and uh, be listening and reassuring to parents. It could be, it should be an easy job. It would be if he just had to organize the teams and players, but the parents, that's what his friends don't understand, how difficult the parents make it. They don't read his emails or Facebook posts, which explain how the league works. They sign up at the last minute or try to sign up way past the deadline. They don't want a coach or volunteer. They don't want to say, here, take my child. But then they constantly make suggestions. Every interaction includes some type of request or complaint. They want Timmy and his friend together, or they want to make sure Timmy isn't with a certain kid. The grass isn't mowed enough or was mowed too recently, triggering Timmy's allergies and asthma. There isn't enough parking. They have to park too far away. When they signed up, they hadn't realized there would be games every weekend or weeknight practices. Even though the schedule is on the handout, the web page, the Facebook page, every email he sends. The game times are too early or too late. The coach is mean to Timmy, unfair to Timmy, favors other players over Timmy, doesn't understand how good Timmy is, plays Timmy in the wrong position. The coach wouldn't play Timmy first, so they could leave at halftime to go to the beach. Could they get some money back for a game Timmy had to miss? Could the trophies be bigger than last year? Could the trophies get bigger each season as the kids get older? Timmy's name was misspelled on his trophy. Could they get a replacement? Could picture day be on a different day? Could the pictures be cheaper? Could the uniforms be nicer? Could the kids have their names on the backs of the uniforms? Why can't sponsors pay for snacks? Why do they have to pay for anything if it's a city league? Aren't their taxes already paying for it? Shouldn't everything be cheaper? Shouldn't everything be free? Shouldn't everything be better? Mauricio sends email after email, and it doesn't matter. People don't read them. They just complain and request, and his job is to smile and nod. He tries to look simultaneously sympathetic and noncommittal, even when he agrees with them. Some of the coaches do suck. Each season, he has to scramble to find new ones for a few teams, and sometimes they know little about the sport, agreeing only because they're Timmy's parent and have to take him anyway. Ironically, the worst coach in the league is British, but people love him because the accent makes them think they're getting the real deal. <laughs> that was worth the the whole book for me to read that, <laughs> to read that one essay right there uh it just it, it is so true and i i think that uh you know this could really be applied to anything that uh where there's an organizer of something and and there are a lot of non-organizers and non-doers who want to have opinions about you know what the organizer has done and the funny to me the funniest part it's on the web page it's it's on the facebook page uh, it's in all the emails i've sent and still they haven't read it because they all feel like well, I, I just need to have a little personal conversation with you here so when they have a personal conversation with a, what two thousand parents that are in the league how they ever can get the job done <laughs> and and i i feel for him because i know if if a parent he knows if a parent is approaching him it's going to be a request Right. And that's that's it. It's not going to be anything else. And they're going to beeline for him. 
I mean, when they're charging up to him, they're not charging up to say, what a great job you're doing, Maurice. No, no. Like, this is a wonderful experience, or thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, but but some of the things you said in here actually happened, you know, can, in, either in different leagues I've seen, you know, uh, could you play our kids so that, you know, because we got to go to the beach, uh, you know, afterwards. And by the way, can I get a, get a refund? Because we're only going to be here for half the season because we got tennis camp or something, you know. So um, it, it just it, – it's a dynamic. It's not on the field. The kids probably don't ever see this. They're yeah. just showing up and playing. But um, it's one of the sides, I suppose, of uh, youth sports. Um, I guess unlike, you know, think back to the Sandlot days, my dad's generation, they didn't really have youth sports so much that was organized. They just went out and played. You know, they organized. It was sort of a community of organizers, right? It yep. was sort of egalitarian. You would you would walk down to the park, and if there was a game on, and there always was, you would get in or get out or play for however long, and then kind of play into a different game. And this this kind of organized these uniforms, uh, schedules, they didn't kind of exist in the same way. And so, uh, having kids is an education. You suddenly learn both how the world has changed since you were a kid, and you you learn about their own passions and interests. I had no idea this is where youth sports had gotten to, nor had I uh, fully understood the kind of privatization of leagues and academies and all of that, rather than just having to organize sports in school, and then you play on your own time. But it has moved away to school from schools in a certain way. Um, so it's it's been it was fascinating to me to kind of see this dynamic. And and how did you? see that because sitting on the sidelines, you're probably hearing complaints by parents about different things that are going on in the league. And you're thinking to yourself, maybe that shouldn't really be a complaint, but are you also hearing it from the organizer? Did you have some seat to this activity? <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I would, this, this took place over years. And so my joke, which is not a joke again, is I did 10 years of research for this as, as uh, my kids started playing when they were four and five. Uh, and I, I would just take notes and I would write these anecdotes. And so I had all of this and I was kind of watching it. But also I teach it at a school that is dedicated to performances. And a lot of the same dynamics uh, take place in dance and in theater. And so, you know, there, unfortunately, my school doesn't have sports teams, which I miss. But we involve ourselves in a lot of the same rituals. And I've had parents say... You know, we were running late. We called ahead so that they would would uh, delay the dance for us so we could arrive to see our kid. And it's like it, it doesn't work that way. You can't do that. And so the dynamic for productions is quite similar to dynamic for games. Interesting. So we had a read here we were going to do. We're, gonna, we're a little tight on time. We're going to do writing life and a read at the end. But this piece I want to talk about, and I'm curious about it. It's the one that involves Rosemary and her children. Um, and it's really about what you would find in any household. And I'm wondering, since this probably a lot of this essay happens away from the field, if there was something in your own life or just conversation that maybe led you to this, because it's about a woman who can't get her kids to do what she asked them to do. And yet she's doing all these things for them to get them to the field and do everything else. So did this come out of a, some, some personal experience? Oh, I, absolutely. So I, so sometimes I see other people and sometimes I take myself and put them, but the, there's a paragraph in here that is, that is absolutely my experience. And the first beginning of this paragraph is, this isn't how it was supposed to be, the cry of every parent she knows. And this idea of 
every time I would tell my son something, he would be, uh, we called him Mr. No and Dr. No. He would say, no, that's not true. You know, it's getting dark tonight. No, it's not. There's going to be street lamps. It's like, it was reflexive, just reflexive. And it's just infuriating after a while. Yeah. And also there's the moon. That's, it's not dark yet. Yeah. No, there's yeah. all these, there's all these reasons for why you are wrong and uh, you're wrong about everything. And so, you, you know, you go through this essay and you're talking about how, you know, the, the protagonist in this little story is doing all these things. She just wished the kids would just do one thing she asked them to do. And she's taking them to the field. She's doing all this stuff for them. And maybe you could just read the final paragraph of this because it's uh, it, it kind of brings some closure for the person and makes them feel a connection to the outside world. It's not just them dealing with uh, their own children who aren't uh, – you know, responding as they're being requested. So it starts with uh, the phrase "misery loves company." Uh, the fr this is the the last um, the last part of it. The phrase "misery loves company" meant nothing to Rosemary until she had children. Now it describes almost every time she talks with another parent, an honest one. Once she had seen a mother walking along a sidewalk, being trailed by a child who was screaming, "You are ruining my life!" Rosemary had thought. Oh, thank God, them too. These are the true ABCs of parenting, anger, bewilderment, consolation. It's the same in any language. <laughs> so, and yeah, that actually, I, I distinctly remember when I saw that, that happened. I saw this mother being <laughs> followed by her kid and I thought, oh, good. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's just not me. It's not it's just it. me. It's not, yeah. and there's a, there's another part in this where I, the mother wants to say, you know, why can't you just say, okay. Yeah. And I find myself saying, look, just don't argue with me. Just say, okay. It's not yeah. hard. Take out the trash. I'll do it later. I'll do it. Yeah. Just say, okay. <laughs> yeah. Turn yeah. the, turn the TV down. Just say, okay. And sometimes they say, okay. And just sit there and continue watching TV. Right. Okay. Oh, there's, okay. there's okay. that. In a, in okay. a different, in a different story, uh, you know, the father is upset because when he says ready, they will say ready, even though they're just sitting there, you know, half dressed eating. It's just reflexive. It doesn't mean anything. I have a different idea of ready means we're out the door. <laughs> They're like, oh, I know you want me to get ready. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, Jay, let's do this. Let's do a little writing life for a second. Um, let's talk about uh, sort of the risk and the uh, positives of writing about people in plain sight who live in the community with you. That's a, that's a great question. <laughs> and, you know, we could start with our, our family. Um, in that, so there's a there's a thing that happens when you write poetry is people expect it to be autobiographical, even if you're writing characters. And so I've had people come up. I write a lot about my family and my poems, and people will come up and say, "I feel like I know you," and I and I want to say, "Well, you you don't," but instead I say, "Thank you very much." Uh, and they feel it's somehow us. And sometimes that's true. I wrote one book of poetry that was absolutely kind of documentary poetry of witness. But there's this other thing that happens that you realize your family is going to read that. Like they're going to see it and they're going to say, oh, that's your perspective. And that wasn't right. And we all have these different ideas. And so you're writing and you have one eye out for, do I really want to reveal this? Do I, what are they going to think when they read this? And so honesty can quite often take a hit <laughs> when you're doing that. Because you're not going to be fully honest because why would you hurt the ones you love? So then when you're writing fiction, so then I thought, well, I can take some of these and spread them out to characters and have some, give myself some cover, right? That's not really me. That's this other, other person. That's fiction. Uh, and, then, and then it becomes interesting because it becomes a kernel of something else. 
So I wrote this and I've had people come up and say, oh, that's, that's who's me in the book? That's me, right? That's me. And what's interesting is they're almost always wrong. It's like you are in the book, but that was not you. It was this other person in the book. <laughs> you aren't the character that was that I thought so much of. You were this guy over here on page twenty-eight that nobody wants to sit next to, right? Yeah, you you were the you were the one driving the van. You were the you know you were the one yeah. over there. Um, yeah. And so you you shift things around. You take that kernel and then you or or that core, and then you use it for something else. Mm. Uh, but then there's all kinds of. I haven't had anybody really come up and be mad really come up and say, what are you doing? Probably there are people who are disappointed if they've in fact read it, but I, I haven't gotten any blowback like that. Uh, but I don't see why, why I would. I mean. Yeah. Well, you, you, you provide yourself a little cover by calling it fiction, but uh, you know, there's this thing out there kind of an oxymoron, I think a little bit It's called creative nonfiction. Uh, some of these pieces I suppose could fall into that category because they're based on, uh, real life events and, and let you, you've extrapolated from that and added your own imagination to those. Absolutely. And so I, t I teach a class in creative nonfiction and I always have a problem with that uh, first part of it. It's like nonfiction should, should be creative. Poetry should be creative. That, that seems to me to be weird unless we're saying taking the techniques of narrative. Um, just like I think I mentioned the, the magazine poets and writers, upsets me in its title because we're, we're writers and maybe we'll write a poem or we'll write this or we'll put it in a different kind of form. So, but this does kind of give me cover and I can, it's, it is, it is hopefully feels true because a lot of it is true, but I'm not that interested in saying it's documentary truth. Mm. Yeah. Maybe the, when they were thinking about the title of that magazine, they could have said poets and prose or something, you know, or poetry and prose or whatever. You well, know. the minute you say, the minute you say I'm a poet, it upsets people. It's like, Oh, but, but don't worry. You can talk to him or he knows his sports or he's a poet, but he seems relatively normal. And so yeah, I mean, he could still bench 225. I mean, don't worry yeah. about it, you know? Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, let's talk a little bit about process. We do that sometimes on the show. Um, how is writing these stories uh, different than what you do when you write poetry? Talk a little bit about your process. Uh, you've alluded to it a little bit. You were sort of a secret note taker, you know, through the 10 year period, but uh, talk a little bit about process. So uh, yes, I am a secret note taker and not just in, in the kind of on the fields, but at coffee shops, I've, I've written for decades sitting in coffee shops and just listening to people at the next table, which is really fascinating. And so that's taken a real hit at this particular kind of cultural moment where I haven't been able to sit there. But I, I will take a, an idea or a phrase or a dialogue or a, a, something that interests me. None of these, and I, I deliberately guard against, none of these are lessons. None of these are kind of work hard or do this or love everybody or uh i don't and none of my poems are that way there's usually something i'm i'm an image a phrase a moment that i find really interesting i i find it interesting and this happened to my son when he was young they were getting killed so badly that our coach went to the other coach and said quit would you quit scoring on us you score on us again we're gonna leave and they did so our coach pulled the whole team off the field and I keep thinking about that, like, was that a good thing to do or a bad thing to do? Was that a good lesson? It's not a lesson at all, but it's just this moment of intense frustration. And like, there's so much packed into that. I like these moments that a lot of things are happening and packed into and aren't really simple and obvious. 
And they may seem obvious at first, but if you turn it in your hand, you can kind of see it from different perspectives. Yeah, that's good. I mean, you, you're right. It, there could be different lessons. You know, how do you deal with loss? How do you deal with, you know, getting the crap kicked out of you? You know, do you quit and take your ball home or do you get through it and live to play another day? So that is a quagmire there. Um, okay, so Joe, sometimes authors write to understand themselves, to understand the world around them. Um, after writing uh, this deck of cards here, um, <laughs> plus two jokers. <laughs> did you, um, what was it that you learned maybe about yourself that you didn't realize before you undertook this process? That's a, that's a really great question. Um, and, and I think from a writing standpoint, one of the things I learned is how difficult it is for me to structure a longer work. Like I once wrote a kind of more traditional novel and 300 pages in nothing had happened and I was bored. <laughs> And so it's like, okay, this is not my form, right? So I learned a lot as a writer, like what I want to do with fiction and how I want to put things together. I learned a lot as a, as a kind of sports person, both how important sports are to me uh, and how important they are, even though this book is really about kind of parenting, but how they kind of help us cohere as a community. And so it helped me think through a lot of things as I was watching my children and these other children interact, kind of what was happening. So I saw a headline uh, recently that said, you know, this, this moment that we're in now, this pandemic shows the, how irrelevant sports are, like why, what, they're pointless. And I thought that is exactly wrong. Sports, uh, first, they allow us to talk to each other about something other than politics and something that's not terribly confrontational and they help us form communities and I really love that for people like my son like last year he he his grades plummeted at a particular point and we said well, what happened and he said oh well the track was over then you know I kept I kept in school I kept maintaining as long as I had sports and as soon as that was taken away everything fell apart it kind of gives him meaning and so I had these real, realizations of, of really what the significance of sports is to us as parents and how we misjudge each other, even in these kind of environments that we think we understand what's happening. Yeah. I mean, it was a significant uh, factor in my own life, having uh, played sports in high school, but gotten hurt as a senior and then not wanting to give it up and walking on and becoming a college athlete and working hard. To, you know, but for me, having that structure of having to be at practice of having to be here, having to be there, always made better grades when I was in season, you know, than when I wasn't. Yeah. And that's what sports can do for you. Well, of course, you know, any any kind of activity, I won't just limit it to sports. For me, it was sports. But for other people, it could be, uh, like at your school of the arts, it could be the drama production. It could be, you know, something else that's a, a team activity, so to speak. Yeah. Absolutely. So when we talk, you, talk, you teach writing, and I'm just curious, um, what is it about teaching that uh, that you enjoy when it comes to writing, and and how does it help you with your own writing? So I was I was really lucky uh, in that when I stepped to the front of the classroom, I turned out I loved it. I had friends who didn't like it, and you know that's that's the worst to stay there because it's a job, but you really don't like it. I I love teaching, and that's one of the reasons I'm still at the school because I find it so rewarding. I love 
talking to people like this conversation we're having and then you make a realization of the best interviews are you discover something oh i didn't realize i thought that way but talking it out that that makes sense now and so it gives me a chance to do that with students all the time the students who come and expect me to just kind of deliver knowledge to them and then they are tested on it are really disappointed in me because that's not what i'm interested in I'm interested in kind of conversations and making things better and process and what does this mean? And the classroom is a space that allows us to do that. Uh, there's a poet, he said, there's only a few really sacred spaces left. And the classroom is one of those spaces that we turn off our cell phones and we concentrate the theater, the classroom, the church. And I feel that when I go in there. And picking up on the second part of my question, do you feel like it's a classroom for you as well in your own writing? Oh, absolutely. And, and so I, I make revelations. I, my students will say something. I learn quite a bit from them, uh, whether it's, you know, oh, this is what TikTok is <laughs> or whatever it may be. You know, they're teaching me all the time and not, not even in a casual way. Uh, you know, I, I learn kind of their political thinking and I learn the things that they're interested in and we, we test ideas back and forth. And so it absolutely helps me. Plus I didn't, I didn't understand grammar at all until I had to teach it. I just internalized it. So when I have to teach something, then I figure out, Oh, this is how it works. This is how dialogue works. This is how, this is how setting works. And you really have to think through it. So, uh, Joe, <clears throat> When was the first time you felt comfortable calling yourself a writer? Oh, that's a, <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, and, and a slightly different question is, is my wife says, why don't you call yourself a poet? And this was, I, it's like, cause I'm not, I'm uncomfortable calling myself a poet. And so I was probably in my forties. I was probably, you know, those first books were just flukes. Those first, it's like, I, I wanted to be a writer, but you actually have to write and then you actually have to publish and then you actually have to do it. You know, there's this constant feeling of falseness, like I'm not a real writer. Um, so it took years and years. And now I'm, I'm comfortable doing that, but it's like, okay, yeah, so what? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. good, uh, you good just, for you. You just, you've got a multiple personality. You're a prose and you're a poet. So there you go. Uh, okay, Joe, so I sometimes ask uh, authors this, um, and there's a, kind of a theme developing, but I'm just kind of keeping track. Why do you write? So the, the glib, but not, but, but honest answer is one of the reasons I write is because it makes me less miserable. My wife knows, she says, if, if I'm really grumpy, she says, you either haven't written today, or you haven't gone to the gym. There's, there's something happening here. You are a better person if you write because it's a focused attention. You've cut everything loose from your mind except this and you're creating something i think john updike said uh something like you know writing you can create something without destroying anything without really it's it's miraculous it didn't exist before and now it does but i also write to figure things out uh i don't i don't often know what's going to happen which is why it takes me so long to find a structure you know robert frost said no no tears for the writer no tears for the reader no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. And he didn't mean like melodramatic, you'll cry. He meant you have to be surprised. You have to make discoveries. And if you're not making discoveries, your, your readers aren't going to. They're going to feel tricked and manipulated. And so I, I write to discover stuff. 
And even for a poem, I will like look up words and go, I didn't know what that's what that word meant. That's amazing. Wait, I thought that word meant something different. And so you're constantly learning about stuff. Yeah. So what was the saddest story that you wrote about in this collection? And uh, what was the most inspirational? I think I think the saddest story is the story of the of the woman whose child has died and her and her husband are both trying to deal with it but it's very they do it in two different ways and uh, it's a period of grieving and there's another story in there where the where the father has died unexpectedly and the mother is dealing with that as kind of we do we go to a we go to these uh, games and everybody is cheering but you know there's somebody dealing with drug addiction over there and alcoholism over there and I haven't done anything with this. I'm just remembering this. An overheard exchange on a bleachers that I haven't figured out what to do with. It's behind me. I heard somebody say something like, uh, seriously, this time I'm going to be clean. This time I'm going to stay clean. And the other voice said, I know, Mom. I know you're trying. And to me, that was just like, there's a, that's devastated me. And so, and, and hurts me in a certain way. So those stories I find really difficult. The, the center story here is a story called Locks, and it's about school shootings. And the parents are trying to reassure their kid who is, you know, freaked out by the lockdown that happened in their school. And I just think of how much we lie to our kids all the time about Santa and the tooth fairy and you'll be safe and you'll never die. And how do you how do we function? So that that was a kind of key difficult story for me. And by the way, Santa is real and the tooth fairy. Yes. And, yeah. Uh, any of you listening at home? I mean, this is, this is a poet and an author who doesn't know what he's talking about uh, when it comes to these, you know, very important people in our lives. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah. So anyway, what about the most inspirational do you think in, in here? So I, I, so the most inspirational, um, that's, that's an interesting question. There's, there's, stories that I really like because I like the points of view. I think uh, the, the final piece is inspirational. Probably the inspirational story is the one where the, a character is thinking about a ball and how the soccer ball is put together, that it's black and white and integrated and you need all these other forms and that's kind of how a family is put together. And that story was really important to me to think about. So what is it a family does? That's good. Well, and you also mentioned the last piece, which does have an inspirational side to it, which is a good segue because we're getting close to the end of the show here. Um, give us a title and uh, just briefly tell us why you, why this is uh, the wrap up for uh, this collection before you read it. So uh, this is a, a Z story. The last stories are Z stories. So this is Zidane, who was a French soccer player. Um, and it was where I was trying to think about what is it about sports that is in important to us and what is it about parenting that is important to us and we said earlier there there was no heroes there's a a person who scores in the game who uh clearly has some developmental problems and is an odd kid but he actually ends up scoring even though his team loses but he scores and everybody is happy for him because that kid scored and it's kind of amazing and so everybody cheers even though it really has no effect on the game at all and so there's many things that thread through and then come here at the end. Uh, and so I was trying to culminate it in a certain way, but then also realize you can't really, you can't really wrap it up nicely. So this is Zidane. Everyone had been surprised when the ball went in. Even the kid who took the shot. He had a look of astonishment like, 
Did I do that? Some kids have the arrogance of thinking every time they shoot that it's going to go in. They truly believe it. Some, like that kid, are surprised they even connect with the ball when they kick at it. Almost all the kids on the field started jumping up and down. Usually half of them would be upset, angry, and depressed. That is the traditional end. After all, 50% of the players in each game are losers. And across America and around the world, parents have to deal with the subsequent meltdowns and emotional tumult. That's why some parents pray for wins, not because they want their children to be winners, but because a loss can badly derail a day. Competitive sports are happiness balanced by disappointment. But not this time. Both teams are elated, except for the goalie, Laura, who was annoyed, then angry. She had protested and then started crying and then had been desperate to show that she wasn't crying, whacking away the hand of her mother who had come over and clearly saying something rude to the other woman who was there, stomping away, anger, the fallback solve. It wouldn't take long before she would make excuses. Sun in the eyes, he cheated, a lucky shot, and considering who had scored, the magnanimous, I let him. I felt sorry for him. She might even come to believe that it was true. There would be all kinds of explanations about what happened and all kinds of truths. The truth right now is that even though her team won, Laura was upset because she had been beaten by that kid. She had been made to look bad. She thought the cheering for him was against her. The truth right now is there was no way that kid should have scored. It had been a fluke caused by a weird speed to the ball, a grass clump from the poorly maintained field knocking it awry. The kid's lack of coordination might have put a lopsided spin on it. The goalie might have been distracted about what that kid might do. It's exactly what Jeremy loves about sports. Not the supposed hard work leads to success ethos, but its opposite. The unpredictability. The Zidane moment. It's a World Cup final, overtime. One of the best players in the world suddenly loses his cool and headbutts the opponent. It's the Super Bowl, and the mediocre New York Giants beat the undefeated Patriots. It's a championship baseball game, and a fan gets in the way of an outfield catch. It's college football, and a coach runs onto the field and punches a player. Sports reassure Jeremy that the world is an unpredictable place, one capable of surprise. Sports are a simulation, running possibilities again and again and again, and finding out that they don't come out the same each time. Sports aren't an escape from reality. They are reality. This is the way the world is shaped. You think you know what is going to happen, and usually you do, but there are surprises and flukes. That kid scoring a goal, that was the cosmos, unexpected. So what if it bounced off him? He had been there, he had caused it, that was satisfying. If it would have been that heavy kid or that girl who constantly seemed on the verge of tears, that would have been the cosmos as well. The cosmos is the expected and the unexpected entangled. This is why sports have taken over weekends and become the secular Sabbath. Sports explain the world in its ritual and its longing and its sacrifice and its goddamn inscrutability. You can ask God why a team won. You can point towards the heavens, but that deep voice booming from the sky is just the announcer in the press box. Timmy comes towards Jeremy holding his snack. Did you see that, Daddy? That was amazing. Yeah, I saw it, it was. But we still won. We're undefeated. So far. We might go undefeated all year. Maybe. You think so? It's not impossible. 
But do you think it's going to happen? Jeremy shakes his head. Timmy, since the day you arrived, I haven't known what is going to happen. Joe, that's a great, uh, that's a great way to wrap up the podcast. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how many people are going to listen. We don't know, uh, you know, what's going to be coming up next on the podcast. Although you can find out if you subscribe to the newsletter, that'd be a good way to find out, uh, uh, at Charlotte's podcast. But, uh, I love the, uh, the metaphor here connecting sports, the unpredictability of a sporting contest to the unpredictability of life. Um, you know, we suit up every day as my dad and his brother used to always say, lace them up. Let's go, let's go play, you know, and we suit up, we go to work, we do our best. Sometimes it turns out like we want it to. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes that thing happens that never under a thousand possibilities could have happened, but it happens. And that's what happens in sports, right? I mean, this, and this is, this has taken my son uh, and it's still difficult for him. This idea, well, they have the best, they're the good team, right? They're seated first, they're seated eighth. Of course they're going to win. It's like, well, you have to play the game. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean he wants to know who's the good one. They're going to win. And it, it just doesn't work that way. It does quite often, but not always. He's just knowing how to want to have to know how to place the bet. That's all. Yeah. Well, there's that. <laughs> and we're always surprised. <laughs> we're always surprised how that turns out. Well, Joe, this has been great. Um, listeners, you can find information about uh, Joe and his work in the, in the show notes, uh, information about how to find the book. And, uh, you know, if you want to read a book uh, that you might think it's one thing going in and be really surprised and, uh, enlightened uh coming out this this will be a good read because uh it does take you to a sporting event but it gives you a lot more beyond that joe thanks so much for uh for being on the podcast thank you it's been a pleasure well that's it for today another fine author giving voice to their written words next tuesday we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author but before then be on the lookout for another under the covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.